15. It's on page 790 in the Church Bible, 790-791. If you want to turn there in the Church Bible or your own Bible, please do so. It will be a lot easier to follow along. Before we begin, let's pray together. We're so thankful for this vision of the consummation of all things, Almighty God. You will send your Son again as the glorious bridegroom for his bride. And for the hope that we have that you are preparing us to know you, to meet you on that day, and to be part of this eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. We're so thankful that you are at work in us and making us holy and making us ready preparing a people for yourself. We trust that you are doing that tonight as we open your word we come before you in hopes that you will speak to us, speak to our hearts and minds and change us and not one of us would leave here without having encountered you, heard from you, and been equipped to go back out into the world and live in it but not of it. And so we pray by the power of your spirit that you would open our ears, open our eyes to encounter you this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a series on the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This uh, thing that we say every week when we recite the Nicene Creed and oftentimes seems really strange and confusing. We're just unpacking each one of these four marks of the church, been the four marks of the church from the very beginning. Uh, they end up in the Nicene Creed, but they're anticipated in Acts chapter 15. That's where these four are found together first. And as we've been going through Acts chapter 15 together, we've been looking at each one of these words one at a time. We're now in the third of four messages, and we're thinking about this third mark, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church. Uh, we like to be able to talk about these different things and sermons and rest without having you review everything that's happened before. This is one of those weeks, though, I think it would be very helpful to just do a little rewind and a little review. So let me tell you what you missed. If you've been on holiday, like most people, uh, I haven't been in for the past couple of weeks. We, we began in the beginning of Acts chapter 15 two weeks ago, and our focus was on the apostolic church. And the apostolic church um, is built on the essential message of Christianity. That's the foundation for the apostolic message, the gospel message that Jesus entrusted to his apostles to carry out into the world. It's a message that begins in the Old Testament and is fulfilled and completed in Jesus himself. And uh, because it begins in the Old Testament, it was right for the church to have to wrestle with this question of circumcision, which is central to Acts chapter 15. The question before the Jerusalem Council that gathers in Acts 15 is the question of what is necessary for Gentiles as they enter into the church. Did they have to be circumcised in order to enter? Did they have to become Jewish before they became Christians? And the answer, as Peter explained in chapter 15, verses 6 through 11, is 
Yes, of course they had to be circumcised if you're talking about what the Old Testament always pointed to, what circumcision was always about, which is circumcision of the heart. A clean heart, absolutely, that was necessary. Um, and Peter testified and said, I saw this. It happened when I brought the gospel to the Gentiles. I saw the Holy Spirit come upon them and their hearts were made clean. And I knew then that they had become Christians. He says, no, they don't need to be circumcised if what you're talking about is the external right of circumcision. No, that's not necessary. In fact, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. What matters on the inside, that's what the old circumcision right was always about. And instead, uh, because it didn't matter any longer, the church shifted to baptism as a way of showing something on the outside uh, for what had happened inside when the Holy Spirit came upon new believers. Baptism became that sign of entrance both for women and for men, uh, signifying a heart washed clean. Last Sunday we focused on the Holy Church and the essential practices of Christianity. The Apostolic Church is about the essential message. The Holy Church is about the essential practices of Christianity. Holiness is not primarily about what we do, but about who we know. It is God who is holy, 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 and our own holiness comes only through being in a relationship with Him. In verses 12 to 21 of chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council moved beyond what was necessary to enter into the church, whether circumcision was necessary, and began to talk about uh, how to live within Christianity. What were the essential practices for all Christians? We heard in the Gospel lesson tonight that um, the Lord Jesus fulfills the law, and yet he continues to expect Christians to be salt and light in the world. We heard last week from Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith, and yet we are made to be Christ's workmanship, to go out into the world as his ambassadors and to serve him. And that means that we are given certain privileges and also responsibilities. Given the privilege of being made an ambassador of Christ, given the privilege of knowing the one who is holy, 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 what then are the common sense rules and responsibilities that should accompany this privilege for the Holy Church serving as his ambassadors? And uh, James took the floor, and James spoke to this question in the Jerusalem Council, and for the purity of the church and the honor of the Lord, he recommended to the council four prohibitions that form the basis of the letter that's written in today's lesson that we're going to look at in just a moment. Now as we turn our attention to today's passage, to talk about Catholicity, we do so in view of what's already happened, and what we've already seen, regarding the word and the way of the church. All Christians, regardless of denomination, regardless of the language they worship in, or the location of their congregation, all Christians must be established on the apostolic word, the word that Jesus entrusted to his apostles to take out into the world, and uh, then they must live according to the holy way, doing these essential practices that honor the Lord. In light of those things, let's think about what it means to be a Catholic. I spent a month in the Soviet Union at the tail end of the Cold War, and uh, when I was in Moscow, uh, the talk was all about how the Western companies were trying, they were racing one another to get into the Soviet Union to plant their flag for 
their different businesses. And Moscow, everyone was very excited at that time about the enormous McDonald's that had just opened just off of Red Square. At the time, there were a lot of questions about whether it was the real deal, whether it was totally authentic or not. Is, is this a true McDonald's? Because they were having some problems. They uh, had, a, had difficulty getting Idaho potatoes to grow there, and so the suppliers were giving them tiny potatoes and the french fries were too short. And sometimes they couldn't get enough iceberg lettuce, and so they were struggling with what to put on it that was green, and sometimes they were putting parsley on the Bolshoi maps. And, uh, and then it wasn't really fast food because you know there were like 30,000 people lined up outside waiting to get in. And so there were a number of things that raised questions about whether this was the real deal or not. But overall, it's still easy to understand why the people of Moscow called this restaurant the Amerikanskaya Pasolta, or the American Embassy. It was the real deal. A visit to the Red Square McDonald's was a visit to America. But what about visiting the church someplace far away from Jerusalem? Or Constantinople? Or Rome? Or Wheaton? What about visiting a church out there? And this is where the idea of Catholicity came in, and it developed early on as new congregations were springing up throughout the Roman Empire. Were these congregations authentic extensions of what had first begun in Jerusalem, or were they poor imitations lacking in some essential details? Of course, there would be differences in language and style as Christianity crossed into new cultures, but if they were Catholic, then they were true embassies of God's kingdom, regardless location or language. The word Catholic is derived from a Greek phrase, prepositional phrase, katholis, which means throughout the whole, or according to the whole, and it's a phrase that's often used to describe something spreading throughout a container or a region. Imagine uh, a two-liter bottle that's empty and you put some helium in it, and uh, according to somebody's law, it's a Boyle's law, tell me scientists, that the, the helium spreads out through the Right? Uh, that's Catholic. That's Catholic. It fills the whole thing. Um, you can imagine your mobile phone carrier using this phrase to uh, advertise that they have coverage throughout all of Washington, D.C. Their coverage, their 4G coverage is Catholic. It's Catholic. Right? Or you can imagine the, um, the City Council of Washington, D.C. Uh, after having passed marijuana legislation, bragging that now the smell of skunk weed is capital A throughout the entire city, wherever you go. Cross into DC, you know you're there. The Bible never uses Catholic to describe the church. The first such usage occurs just a little bit after the New Testament was finished in the early second century in a letter written by the Bishop of Antioch, where so much of the action took place in the book of Acts, particularly in uh, these chapters that we've been looking at. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, writing to the church in Smyrna, said that wherever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. Wherever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. The circumstances of his letter to the Smyrnans help us to understand what he meant by Catholic, what he meant by this phrase. 
It was about 25 years since the last of the apostles had died out. Bishop Ignatius wrote during the time of a terrible persecution that had broken out against the church, and in fact, while he was on his way to be executed and martyred for his faith. And he wrote to the church in Smyrna, whose pastor, their bishop, Bishop Polycarp, who was so beloved, uh, where he had, just some years earlier, already been martyred, his faith. Increasingly, the new leaders of these churches were men who had never known an apostle. And so how were they finding out about the word and the way of Christianity? Well, they were having to read the Old Testament. They were having to read these letters from the apostles that were being passed around. Meanwhile, heretical leaders are popping up here and there, and they're vying for control of the church, and they're saying, we have a way that we can avoid persecution. We just change some of our beliefs and practices here. The Romans won't be mad at us at all anymore. So all of this was going on, and it was in this context that the question of what constituted an authentic church became an urgent concern. And in his letter, Ignatius encouraged the church in Smyrna to stand firm against heresy and hold on to the truth of the Christian faith. Put simply, they needed to believe the apostolic word of the gospel. That's the message they had to believe. He also reminded them to continue living as ambassadors for Christ, caring for widows and orphans, loving one another, and so on. In short, they needed to keep practicing the holy way that had been passed down to them. But who would leave them if the Romans kept murdering their pastors? Or if they lost contact with the mother church back in Jerusalem? The fear of persecution makes us crazy. It was a danger then, and it's a danger today. It's fear of persecution that's driving the paranoia in a lot of Bible-believing churches in North America today. Terrified of losing control, we become obsessed with those things that we can control. Things like beliefs and behavior, like doctrine or word and way. We become obsessed with controlling those things. And at the same time, we lose sight of what we cannot control, that is, the Lord himself. He becomes irrelevant as we try to lock down and hold on to the things that we can't control. He's the one that we have to worship, and whose presence among us ultimately dispels all our fear and restores our peace. And we're desperate for him, desperate for him in the church today. In his letter to persecuted Christians, Ignatius reminded them of something else that's important and easily forgotten when the going gets rough. It's good to hang on to your doctrine. It's good to hang on to your practices. But the risen Lord Jesus must be present with you. That's the most important thing. And that happens whenever we gather for worship. As long as we keep bowing our hearts before the High King, we're going to remain an authentic outpost his kingdom. Or, as Ignatius wrote, wherever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. So even in a congregation that's far, far away from Jerusalem, that's sort of cut off from the rest of the church, they could still be an authentic outpost of Christianity. They still could be Catholic. And in order to do that, they had to stick to the essentials. They had to stick to the apostolic word. They had to stick to the holy way. And they had to welcome Jesus into their presence and honor him as their Lord.
these things, any congregation with these things, back then, today, regardless of what's on the sign out front, regardless of what language they worship in, regardless of what kind of liturgy they have, when these things are in place, that's what makes it a Catholic church. Let's look at today's lesson, starting in verse 22, where we find that the Jerusalem Council finally came to a decision, and they chose to officially welcome the Gentiles into the church in a really exemplary manner. In their letter and in their, their entourage that they send, they're really modeling for them the priority of the word, the way, and worship. Uh, and we're going to see this as we read through these verses, starting in verse 22. Uh, verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Luke says that the Jerusalem Council was comprised primarily of, uh, of the apostles and elders. Apostles were the eyewitnesses of Jesus, uh, Jesus' resurrection, whom he chose and sent. Uh, apostello in Greek means I send, and that's where we get apostle from. So these were the ones Jesus sent to proclaim the, the message of his kingdom. The elders, Greek presbyters, um, were men who were given leadership responsibilities in the different congregations. One man among the presbyters would be chosen as their president uh, and, and consecrated to serve as that's who James was in the story. So from verse 22, it appears that the apostles and elders came to a decision about what to do. But before they acted on it, they took it to the entire church. That's what it says there. Um, they brought it before the Holy Ecclesia. That is the whole church. And um, that phrase, Holy Ecclesia, is not quite the Catholic phrase that becomes Catholic but they're really close. They have essentially the same words there. And what's happening here is it anticipates something that is monumentally important. I want to make sure that you don't miss this. Think about it. The people gathered in Jerusalem at that point were officially the whole church. And what they were about to do with this decision was they were about to declare from that point on that they weren't the whole church without bringing in the Gentiles. The Gentile brothers and sisters, together with them, from that point on, would be church. Wow. What a hard decision, and acting on it, what a beautiful demonstration of the way of the Lord. What a gracious thing to do. How in the world would they have ever thought to do this? How in the world would they have ever decided to, to lay down their lives in order to bring more people into the church. Well, it's Jesus, of course. <laughs> they were studying Jesus. They learned this from him. Jesus laid down his life to bring them into the church. And when the Jerusalem Council met in worship, because that's what they were doing when they gathered, they did so in the presence of Jesus, their risen king. And it was Jesus who led them to a decision. And Jesus, who then helped them act on that decision by laying down their lives and welcoming in these other people, a sacrificial conclusion. Jesus helped them follow in the way of the cross, humbling themselves to share their privileged position with outsiders and people who were frankly their former enemies. A beautiful, beautiful way to show their commitment to Jesus, to demonstrate. Verse 22, Luke says that they decided to send 
two esteemed leaders with them, Judas and Silas, to go back with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, these were Jewish Christians that they sent along, to, and uh, they were demonstrating their esteem for the people in Antioch. They also demonstrated this in the way they introduced the letter to them, verse 23, where they greeted them as brothers and sisters who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria. And now as we continue reading through this letter, what strikes me is the, the priority that's given to the accuracy of the word. Um, throughout this passage and throughout Acts, words really, really matter. Words can be used to build up. Words can be used to tear down. In verse 24, the Jerusalem Council acknowledged the harm that had been done among the Gentiles by those who distorted the message. He wrote, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. As Paul put it in his letter to the Galatians, the Jews from the circumcision party were preaching a false gospel. They got the apostolic message wrong, so they're their words tore people down instead of building them up. That's not how the word of the Lord is supposed to work. Even though there's always a call to repentance, uh, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it's always Jesus behind it who is bidding people to come to him and to find rest for their weary souls when they come to him. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. The true gospel might disturb your idolatry, it might disturb your sin, but it won't leave you troubled and unsettled. It leads to peace with God and with his people. So the Jerusalem Council had some repair work to do, and they used their words to reverse the damage done by the distorted message that was attributed to them. They used their words to build up rather than tear down. But note that their words, not all their words, were nice words. Not all of them uh, led to universal inclusivity. That was not their objective. And this is a mistake people often make when they talk about Catholicity as universalism. It's just not. That's not what it's supposed to mean. The idea of Catholicity excludes as well as it includes. Not every hamburger restaurant in Moscow is the American embassy, and nor is every person from Jerusalem who has a message a faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem Council, through godly deliberation, came to a decision that went one way and not another. They chose not to require circumcision of the Gentile believers, and in so doing, they publicly disavowed the position of the circumcision party. Those people, as they said in verse 24, went out from us without our instructions. They were heretics. They were wrong to do so. They were preaching a false gospel. The message they preached distorted them. Continuing the letter, the Jerusalem Council went out of their way to affirm Barnabas and Paul, describing them as beloved. See that in verse 25. In verse 26, men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And models for us to do the same. Jesus alone is worthy of our lives. The council also sent Judas and Silas, verse 27, to confirm the message contained in the letter. Think of the, the cost to the church in Jerusalem losing two of their best leaders at a time when Jewish population uh, was growing increasingly hostile to the Christians who were there. But they thought it was worth it. They needed to do it in order to repair what had been done, the damage that had been done by the false gospel. 
And then included with this message were those four practices James had already proposed back in verse 19. He said then, so as not to trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. And the letter here uses a very similar language. See in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. By the way, how could they claim to have the Holy Spirit on their side? What, what gives them a pass to say that? How do they know to say that? Well, the answer is because, as, as we have seen again and again in the book of Acts, Jesus is at work guiding his people into all truth by the power of his Holy Spirit. And it is primarily by going back to the Word of God that this happens. This is what we have seen again and again in Acts. The way the Spirit does this in Acts is through God's people studying the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures together and coming to agreement. Uh, where their message is in conflict with the Scriptures, they correct it. This is what Peter did uh, when he realized that the Gentiles had circumcised hearts. They said, oh, okay, now I get it. They don't have to be circumcised on the outside. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, everyone in Jerusalem had examined the Scriptures. They had come to the same conclusion, sometimes helping one another to get there. And they were able to write with confidence, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How did that happen? Because they were together in the Word. And the Word led them because the Holy Spirit was working in the Word to guide them. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on no greater burden than these requirements. They knew that the prohibitions James identified would not be a burden, but a blessing. These things involved, as we talked about last week, we talked about this in much greater detail last week, so if you want to go back and listen to that or read it, we send these out on the story. Um, they involved abstaining from idolatry, blood, the strangled, and from sexual immorality. Uh, the prohibition against idolatry makes perfect sense. As it was back then, idolatry today is alive and well. It's everywhere in our city, even though you don't see people uh, burning incense to little statues that much. Um, nevertheless, wherever wealth, and popularity, and power, and pleasure uh, begin to take central place in the lives of people, what's happening is they're turning away from the living God and worshiping created things. That's idolatry. When Christians do this, it is immediately corrosive to their faith. James says, we can't allow even a little of this to come into the church. That's why it has to be ruled outright completely. It must be prohibited. It cannot be tolerated even for a moment within the holy people of God. Same thing with the prohibition against sexual immorality. It was crystal clear back then. It's crystal clear today. Sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife tells the truth about the love between God and his people. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, prostitution, multiple partners, same-sex partners, all are ways that sex has become disconnected from what God intended. And all are ways of seeking love, pleasure, satisfaction, or relationship independently, apart from others. Modern-day heretics sometimes say there's nothing in the ecumenical creeds about sexual ethics, but that's hogwash. Let me tell you, it's right here in the very first creed 
in Acts chapter 15, this, this uh, creed that developed from the Jerusalem Council. The granddaddy of all the other creeds, sexual immorality of any kind, in any way, is forbidden among the people of God. And the world needs the church to be holy, to avoid these things that detract from the holiness of marriage. The prohibition against the strangled, or probably better translation is the smothered, very hard for us to understand, and it's hard because the, the Greek here is so obscure. James is probably talking about abortion or infanticide here. We cannot be absolutely sure. He could be talking about a way of butchering meat that, uh, that kept the blood in it. When we add in the other prohibition against blood, what becomes uh, clear from these together is that there was a, a grave concern for the sanctity of sanctity of life of all kinds, uh, a concern that Christians of all people would be people who care for living things. And uh, because they are people who believe in a God who died and rose again. And so the God of resurrection uh, leads Christians in loving life and valuing life. Apart from God and the hope of resurrection, life loses its meaning, loses its value. The world needs the church to be holy and to avoid those things that detract from the sanctity of life. Again, for Christ's ambassadors to affirm uh, the holiness of God and the sacredness of life and of marriage is simply a no-brainer. It's the kind of practices uh, that honor the Lord and give life to His people protect us from the toxic and corrosive ways of the world. They do not lay a great burden on God's people. They just don't. They're an easy yoke in comparison to the heavy yoke of these practices out in the world. And we're told how the people in Antioch received this when the letter was read in verse 31. The church heard the letter and they rejoiced because of its encouragement. These are Gentiles. These are people who have been living it up sexually, living it up out in the world, eating anything and everything. Blood was everywhere. Idols were in every closet in their house. And we were told that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It was good news for them because what they wanted was to grow in grace as ambassadors of Christ. And don't miss what was happening as they heard this letter read. It was in the context of their worship service. Worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The risen Lord Jesus was present, uh, and they were gathered together, verse 30, as a congregation with the risen Lord present among them and ruling over their gathering. And by his presence, they were prepared to hear the reading of Scripture, to study it together, and then to go forth into the world encouraged, responding with joy because the easy yoke that had been given to them, the light burden that had been. Furthermore, we're told, verse 32, that Judas and Silas were both prophets, which doesn't mean that they were fortune tellers, as some, sometimes people think. Uh, the most basic meaning of this word uh, is one who speaks on God's behalf, like an attorney might speak on behalf of a client. Within the congregation gathered for worship in the presence of the risen Lord, the primary work of Judas and Silas, verse 32, and then Paul and Barnabas and others in verse 35, was to explain God's word accurately to the people 
so that they might live according to his way and honor his name with their worship. And that's what made the church in Antioch an authentic embassy of the kingdom of God. In short, they were a Catholic church. Right then and there, they lacked none of the essentials that were necessary to be a complete church. To go there was to have the real deal, just as it was uh, if you went to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's why uh, Catholicity matters today. Ever since those early days in Antioch, there have always been two opposite impulses in the church. One towards inclusion, and the other towards protection. Every Christian tribe in history has had both of these in one way or another. The inclusivist impulse wants to bring more people in. At its best, it demonstrates faithfulness to Jesus' great mission, carrying the apostolic message out into the world so that everyone can hear and everyone can believe. And we ought to be continually praying that God would open doors so that we can share this message with others. Nevertheless, the inclusivist impulse can become distorted in a variety of different ways. It can become all about us rather than Jesus, so that we're trying to include people into our tribe, maybe the, the tribe of uh, Capitol Hill Christians or the tribe of Big A Anglicans or something other than Jesus. Or uh, it can become all about them. It can become, uh, hey, whatever you believe is fine, we just want you to be included with us. Oh, you have different sexual practices than us? Oh, don't worry about ours. You are welcome in. Uh, we, we really love you that much. We just want you to be a part of this. The inclusivist impulse uh, leads to heresy, ultimately. It leads to a distortion of the message if it's allowed to run amok, apart from the truth of the gospel and the ruling of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other impulse is the protectionist impulse, which at its best wants to preserve the holiness of the church by keeping it distinct from the world. And all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus ought to be uh, excited about living holy lives, being different from the world. Nevertheless, the protectionist impulse can become distorted in many ways, including trying to keep people out of the church for reasons other than believing the gospel. Maybe because they're a different race, or they're a different class, maybe because they're illegal immigrants or something silly like that, can also cause a congregation to become so inward-facing that they no longer uh, have any contact with the outside world. Maybe they have stopped worshiping in a language that anybody understands. Um, this can make a church completely inaccessible to the, to the degree that the protectionist impulse leads to a distortion of that church is no longer Catholic. No longer practices the faith in a way that renders its members faithful ambassadors for Christ. What keeps these two impulses in alignment and in check is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over his church. He is ruling over our congregation, and our inclusion is about him. And it's in accordance with his word, his message that he entrusted to the apostles. And our protectionist impulse is according to his own holy and sacrificial way. We believe what he teaches, through, teaches us through his word, our practices correspond to those beliefs, and our worship reflects that he is present among us. That's what makes us count.
wherever you go in the world, whatever the denomination, whatever the sign says outside, whatever language they speak, whatever the location, if the congregation is true to Jesus' word, true to his way, and worships his presence as a monk, then it's an authentic Catholic outpost of God's kingdom, worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord.